You're in the water loop. Waterloop is made possible in part by grants from Springpoint Partners and the Walton Family Foundation. Waterloop. Hey, this is Travis with Waterloop. You've probably heard me talk about how much I like High Sierra showerheads for their incredible water efficiency, their solid metal construction, and because it's a small business based in the U.S. with owner David Malcolm having a commitment to water and energy conservation. While I hope you value my opinion, there are some pretty major endorsements you should listen to. High Sierra Showerheads were rated Best Showerhead by Popular Science and CNET, and Best Low Flow Showerhead by Wirecutter. If you go on Amazon, you'll see that High Sierra gets the highest ratings, 4.5 to 5 stars, from all the satisfied customers. Use promo code LOOP20 for 20% off at HighSierraShowerHeads.com. You're in the Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. For this episode, we are going to talk about the relationship between agriculture and conservation groups, how that has evolved and examples of collaboration and projects together. Joined by two guests, I have Taylor Hawes. She's with the Nature Conservancy as the Colorado River Program Director. Taylor, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I'm joined by Dan Keppen. He is Executive Director of the Family Farm Alliance. Dan, glad you could join as well. Thanks. Great to be here. Well, I, I was saying beforehand, you two know each other. You've kind of worked together for, for a while. And so if you want to just take over the, the podcast and have a conversation without me, that's yeah. fine too. But looking forward to really hearing about your, uh, you know, all of your perspective on, on this issue. Uh, I always find it really fascinating and important, uh, that relationship between agriculture and conservation or environmental groups. Um, I think maybe historically it wasn't a productive relationship, maybe. Um, how would you describe it from a, from a historic sense if you were to, to look back um, at that relationship, especially in the Colorado River Basin? I would say, you know, you can't really sort of stereotype like all farmers into one category or all conservation groups into one category. And so um, when I first got in the business about 30 years ago, I would say there's probably a little bit more tension than there is now between, um, say, uh, ag organizations and, and the conservation community. But I, I would say for me, I, I really saw things started to shift maybe 10 or 15 years ago uh, in Colorado River Basin and elsewhere, where um, sort of constructive groups like like Taylor's organization, Nature Conservancy, and Trout Unlimited and EDF um, started outreaching and looking for ways to work with agriculture on areas where we had sort of a narrowly focused um, common interest. And I would, I would say that, you know, those relationships were sort of tentative at first and they were driven by finding ways to make the Farm Bill Conservation title uh, work in a way that benefits the environment and, and agriculture. And um, with time, we've, we've seen real successes there on the Farm Bill Conservation title. And then it's led to now uh, examples of, of not just cooperation on policy type things or DC collaboration, but, but work on the ground, which Dangerous Conservancy has a great reputation for. And um, there's examples throughout the West and Colorado and elsewhere where farmers and conservation groups are working on these programs together uh, for win-win benefits. And my, 
my experience has also been the, the public relations associated with the, that sort of collaboration really positive because people want to see what they what they might perceive as varying interests actually working together to to solve problems. Taylor, what's your perspective on kind of the historic relationship, if, if you will, looking back a few decades? Yeah, it's a great question. And um, I had the exact same note that uh, <laughs> environmental groups are not all the same. All farms and ranches are local. Um, so it, you really can't kind of generalize all of these different groups. But I do think um, often that tension that is has been there historically is often from just lack of understanding. Um, and I think that's, you know, when we when we don't understand something, we tend to dislike it or fear it. Uh, and I think we started to see that change. Uh, we also, you know, I think I would observe there's the ur- urban-rural divide. Um, for many, many decades, conservation groups were based in cities and ranchers and farmers are based in rural communities. And so they're, they just weren't interacting very much. And I think that started to change in the last 20 to 30 years. Um, for the Nature Conservancy specifically, we were we started as a land trust in the 50s and we were buying up properties that had uh, significant conservation value. And then in the last 20 to 30 years, we've actually been buying farms and ranches, uh, often be- for conservation value, like perhaps, you know, riverfront habitat or a special forest. But then we owned and operated those farms just like you know, other farmers and ranchers had to do. And so we really learned what those, we learned more about the challenges of operating a farm uh, and a ranch and and the challenges that come with that. But we were also neighbors with farmers and ranchers. So we could really get to understand the the things that kept them up at night and and drove their decisions. And so we, we also lived in these communities, which I think really helped. So, and I think, you know, other organizations, uh, conservation organizations have also started to place their staff people in these rural communities. And I think that really helps when we, when the, the key to a, a kind of successful and productive path for our future in this region is, is understanding each other and, and what, what concerns we have, what challenges we're trying to deal with, and what solutions might be possible. So to me, that was a those are some of the things that have evolved. And I totally agree with Dan that, you know, the last 10 or 15 years has marked a a, a, a thaw and not just a thaw, but a, a a real willingness and a desire to work together and find solutions. And it doesn't apply to everybody or every environmental group or every farmer. Uh, and that's okay. We but we had to start somewhere. So this this change that happened, you know, 10 to 15 years ago, I think you've alluded to some of the reasons, but I'd really love to to dig in there on really why. What what made that happen? What what motivated a, a change in the relationship to being more collaborative and and productive? Is it is it simply you know, things started getting a lot worse on the waterfront um, with with the supply and with those issues and, you know, kind of drought kicking in. Was was that the real driver, um, you know, the past decade or so? Well, I'll, I'll share my perspective. And, uh, uh, you know, Taylor and I may have a little uh, different personal experiences uh, on this. But for me, it was in about the mid-2000s, uh, near the end of the George W. Bush administration, there was a, a farm bill that was um, just starting to be negotiated. And um, a a group of us got together 
um, from the conservation community um, and and the ag community, specifically looking at the conservation title of the farm bill. Um, and you know, again, these are groups that we disagreed with on many things, right? But uh, we did reach agreement, and I think that we shared a concern that the best opportunities to do work that helps the environment is going to be on private ground. And so let's try to find programs that sort of provide a bigger bang for the buck and bring in multiple landowners or watersheds um, where you can really use limited government dollars and show multiple benefits uh, when it comes to, say, water conservation, for example. And, um, and, and, and our organization said, all right, well, you know, that, that's great. We're with you. Um, and, and in the meantime, this provides an opportunity to maybe provide additional cash flow streams to, to some of our members, which gives them more flexibility, makes their operations more viable. Uh, so I, I think what I saw was sort of a, a concern of, about the rapid urbanization and development going on in the West and the conservation groups and the ag, ag groups both felt like uh, that's something that we need to address. We need to find ways to keep these farmers and ranchers in business so that they can continue to produce food, but also work with constructive conservation groups to do good things for the environment. Um, if they go out of business or they're forced out of business, likely that those lands are going to end up becoming condos or development. And I think um, we all agreed that the alternative is, is much better. Having viable sort of landscape uh, ranch operations and farming operations in place where you can also do um, restoration projects uh, on private property was appealing. It was appealing to environmentalists. It was appealing to, uh, to, to farmers as well. Taylor, what are your thoughts on the real drivers for the change in the, in the relationship dynamic? Yeah, so I, I was hired to do this job for the Nature Conservancy back in 2008. Mm. And that was 2001 to 2010 was obviously a really dry point in the Colorado River, or maybe the beginning of this um, longstanding drought we're in now. And my job was to figure out how, how can the Nature Conservancy play a constructive role in finding solutions. And so I had come from, I'm a water lawyer by training. I had come from working for counties and for a big water district on the Western slope of Colorado. So I had some experience with what the issues were that we're going to, that we were facing and also what, what some of the solutions might be. And so in 2010, I remember being at a conference and someone, and I was on a panel and someone asked me what keeps, what keeps you up at night <laughs> and what gives you hope? And I, the answer to both was agriculture, because I knew if we were going to find ways of reducing our water use, yet keeping a viable economy, while also trying to protect these this incredible iconic landscape of the Colorado River Basin, um, we were going to have to we, we were going to have to find ways to reduce water use. And if you look at the numbers, of course, uh, most of the vast majority of water use is in agriculture. So I knew that we needed to work with agriculture, but it's also, I also know from lots of personal experience as well as professional experience that farmers and ranchers are innovators, they're stewards, they know their land, they know their water, they know what's possible, they know what's not possible. So to me, we, we absolutely had to work with agriculture, but kind of going back to that history that we talked about earlier, it wasn't a simple proposition to just start working with agriculture. 
Uh, you know, there's there's so many farmers and ranchers in the space and they all have their own diversions, their own set of unique challenges. And so we we really had to figure out first, we had to listen. We had to, you know, start to understand those concerns more specifically uh, so that we could be really meaningfully engaged in helping them find solutions, but it had to be a partnership. And the way we started that was... Um, Back in, I think, 2011 or so, we hired a agricultural liaison position to, and we gave him an old car and we told him, you know, which is all we could afford, but we were like, just go out and start talking to farmers, walk the land with them, listen to their concerns, sit at their kitchen table, have a cup of coffee. Um, and we knew that that was going to be a slow approach, but we figured or we hoped that that would be one where we would start to own, to first improve our own understanding and knowledge about what might be possible, but that also we'd start to slowly build trust and that then those producers would say, hey, you should talk to my neighbor. He'd be open to exploring ideas or, you know, he has a different kinds of farming operation that might be um, a better fit for what you're trying to think about. So that's how it started for us is just getting out on the ground. And, and as I said earlier, we, we often have farms and ranchers in these communities. So we tried to um, leverage those relationships of our neighbors just to learn as much as we can and kind of kind of go from there. And it's um, it's been a really, really rewarding journey just to make sure we understand, you know, what these concerns are and the challenges that farmers and ranchers face across the West. It, it, they're significant. Um, and every year is different and every season's different. So it's a, it's a learning game for us as well, but it's been really, I think, fruitful in our in our path to find solutions. It's interesting that, you know, we're talking about water management in the American West. We're talking about this incredible basin in the Colorado River, uh, agriculture, conservation groups. Um, we live in this amazing digital world, but still it sounds like it's all coming down to relationships and even personal connections um, as what has made the difference. And and you guys have, I think, mentioned trust. That That's what's built the trust up is actually that human connection after after all this, huh? Absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, I think part of that is when you get into sort of a new network of relationships and involve a particular project or, or issue, um, you got to go into it I think, with realistic expectations and sort of a narrow scope. And that's sort of, again, going back to the Farm Bill example, we, we agreed on, uh, that it would be beneficial to have a Farm Bill program, conservation title program, that wasn't just an on-farm sort of a focus that, that it, it, it allowed multiple landowners and, and folks in a region or districts perhaps to work together to come up with these projects. And, uh, and ultimately we're successful. And, and, and what led to that was a coalition of conservation groups and ag groups that has now morphed into this, this Western ag and conservation coalition, which, which includes nature conservancy and trout Limited and Audubon and EDF but also California Farm Bureau, Family Farm Alliance, um, uh, Public Lands Council of NCBA, 20 different ag and, and conservation groups from around the country. And that, you know, what started out with a, with a focus on um, one sliver of the conservation title, we had success there. It's morphed into continued collaboration. And, and now we're at a point where our coalition is sending in joint letters to Washington, D.C., 
on things that we agree upon as far as priorities and, and funding um, initiatives. And, uh, and we're even tackling things like the Endangered Species Act, which is something I would have never in my wildest dreams thought we'd be having conservation or, or, or conversations with these conservation groups on. So uh, it comes down to trust and that trust is all about working together. And the personal um, element of that is hugely important. You know, it's one thing just being on Zoom calls or conference calls or in meetings and talking about things. But then afterwards, if you can hang it up and have a beer, have dinner with these people um, and get to know them, get to know that, wow, they have kids that are struggling in school just like me. Uh, <laughs> it really it makes a huge difference. And it really it does. It all comes down to relationships and, and everything you do, especially in the water world, is my, my personal view. Yeah. Dan, what about individual farmers, you know, the, the people that are out there um, who probably for, you know, have have felt at times, you know, persecuted or blamed for, for problems or that they feel like they're always being, you know, new regulations are coming after them and all that stuff. Just just from that real personal level, I mean, how have individual farmers responded to this, you know, new era, if you will? Well, unfortunately, um, there's, there's, there's environmental groups that aren't quite as constructive as Nature Conservancy. Same as there's probably far right conservative groups, you know, who, whose strategy relies more on litigation and sort of media attacks and conflicting mm -hmm. legislation, those sort of things. My experience has been do the right thing. And uh, generally, the groups that we're working with, um, like through the Western Ag Conservation Coalition and and, and other groups like that, um, if you have success, the results speak for themselves. And those more radical groups on either side of the political spectrum are marginalized. Mm. And increasingly, I'm seeing our members uh, recognize that. But, you know, for example, here in the Klamath Basin, and we were talking earlier, Travis, where our, our farmers are looking at le far less than 5% of their water, and, and they probably won't get it for another month. And this is a community that's heavily dependent on agriculture. And there's a lot of negative feelings right now, not necessarily towards conservation groups, but for, towards some of the federal laws and, and the litigation surrounding those laws. So um, I don't know, you know, it's times like these when you're in drought that tension really um, rises to the fore and it, and it can really, it can really sort of impact some of these types of relationships. But I'm pretty confident that despite this drought, um, the relationships we have with, with Nature Conservancy and groups like Trout Unlimited will, will stay strong, but it's yeah. going it, to be tested all around. Lots of competition yeah. going on and this severe drought that we're seeing this year. Sure. Well, let's, let's turn a little bit to uh, solutions or specific success stories. I'd love to just kind of hear about examples of areas and even projects, you know, specific projects that involved collaboration and were kind of win-wins for the conservation community and for the ag community? So one that I think is sort of a template for uh, integrated planning success on a large scale of multiple stakeholders tackling multiple um, needs and then providing a solution with multiple benefits is what's happening in the Yakima Basin up in eastern Washington where there's tribal interests, there's um, conservation groups, state of Washington, irrigators, um, um, coming up with solutions that provide reliable water supply reliability, improved forest health, 
and um, really great benefits for, for fish and on a, on a key tributary to the Columbia River. Um, so we have members up there that are uh, helping to drive that process. It's, it's really uh, phenomenal. And, and, and what's interesting is, you know, when you have projects like this um, that could be controversial, but you have people working together when they go back to Washington, D.C., for example, to lobby for dollars or for authorizations on particular parts of the overall solution. Congress people love when they see a letter that has tribes and environmental groups and ag groups and states on it. Um, it makes their jobs a lot easier. Um, another example here close to my home, I live in southern Oregon, on the, right on the near the uh, California-Oregon border in the Klamath Basin. North of here in the Deschutes Basin, there's been tremendous work between the conservation community and uh, irrigation districts and the state and utilities to take these old conveyance systems that were carved into uh, sort of fractured basalt up there in central Oregon where there's a lot of volcanic activity. And um, uh, they've replaced some of these very leaky um, systems, conveyance systems, with pressurized large diameter conduits, which obviously save water um, for the farmers, but under Oregon law, uh, a, por a percentage of that water that's conserved has to go back into the stream to benefit fish as well. So we've got projects up there that are giving farmers flexibility with the types of crops they can grow. Water's going back into the system for um, uh, endangered fish. And <laughs> these conduit systems under pressure provide an opportunity to generate power in conduit as well, which creates another cash flow stream that can be used to do more of this sort of work. So those are two examples of, of many, but those are the two um, that we've been spending a lot of time in the last couple of years that I think are provide a great template for things that can be done elsewhere. Taylor, some examples from your perspective. Yeah. So um, before I jump into a few examples, I do want to just highlight um, this idea of partnership and relationship. It, it really does come down to people. And that, and Dan, you actually said at a conference that I helped organize, you know, progress happens at the speed of trust. And I use that all the time because it's so true. And, and I just think all of these examples we're talking about, you have to understand there's that foundational trust and relationship building that had to happen before you get to these projects. Um, so I also, you know, I would say there's people that work on federal policy in the Nature Conservancy, and, and I'm not one of them, um, but the Farm Bill and the, and, and the Bureau of Reclamation policies, Water Smart, uh, creating funding, all those things I think are, are win-wins and things that we've really tried to do to help bring funding to a lot of these these partnerships and these questions that we are uh, projects that we're all working on together. Um, and I do think, like Dan said, finding those um, ways where we can come together and come before um, a particular senator or committee, or, it's just so powerful when we can find these groups that are willing to work together and, and put practical solutions on the ground. Um, some of the things the Nature Conservancy has been doing, you know, I was trying to think about the best examples and I was trying to categorize them because there's so many and and they they build on each other. So success breeds success in my opinion. Um, but some of the things that we've done is work on the infrastructure and technology side of things. Uh, we've we invested in a in a project in the Uncompahgre Valley in, here in Colorado, focused on uh, 
those big gun sprinklers, a lot, you know, a lot of the fields and in, in these higher elevations rely on uh, flood irrigation or sometimes those big rolling sprinklers. And so this was a new way to, to try to reduce water use through these big gun sprinklers. And um, it was a really successful project and, and a really fun project to work on just to see, you know, to, to be able to measure those savings. Uh, we also in the Verde, one of my other favorite stories is we were um, the Verde has about, it's a small river uh, above Phoenix that flows into, you know, comes in down into Phoenix. And it had um, five big irrigation districts that were diverting water off the river. And <clears throat> these, the infrastructure, the head gates and diversion structures were built in the early 1900s. And so oftentimes just to open and close the head gate was a major ordeal where two guys had to go out and they had to get across the river and they had to turn this giant wagon wheel to open or close the head gate. And so the common practice was just to open the head gate in the beginning of the season and close it at the end of the season, which meant a lot of water was being diverted out of the river unnecessarily. And they were totally open to doing something differently. They just didn't know what, and they didn't have the money to go put in all this modern equipment. And so we partnered with them to first understand what it, what problem we were solving. We then were able to invest in remote head gate operations. So we put in these, um, you know, they can operate it from their cell phones now. Um, and that made a huge difference, both for their quality of life. They didn't have to go risk their life in a thunderstorm to open or, you know, to close the head gate. But they could, it also resulted in way more water being left in the river um, during critical times. And so those kind of infrastructure technology solutions, to me, we really, we, on all these things, we really want to follow the the rancher or farmer's lead. You know, they know what's possible and what isn't, and they're willing to explore things. And the thing we can do is bring funding to help, you know, explore those solutions and test them. The other thing that we've done a lot of is working on legal and policy questions. So in our case, you know, and, and you've probably heard if you've been having some of these interviews on Western water, the phrase you water, you know, you use it or lose it. And so a lot of the farmers and ranchers have questions about reducing their water use and whether that will diminish their water right. And so they want to, they have legal questions. They're really serious legal questions that affect their water rights. And so we've done a lot of research and hired a bunch of different attorneys to help us answer these questions on a state-by-state -state basis to understand how we can protect their water rights. If they do enroll in a program to reduce their water use or fallow or deficit irrigate in a particular year, we can help give them confidence that their, their water rights won't be impacted. In other cases, we've actually paid, given them money to pay their lawyers because there are times when they're going to have a lot more confidence, most of the time, they're going to have a lot more confidence in the outcome and the results and the answers they get if it's from their attorney who knows their system, who knows their water rights and their concerns. So sometimes we do the research ourselves, um, ourselves, and sometimes we, we pass the money along to the irrigation company or a particular farmer so they get an answer that really they can be comfortable with. I think that's really important, again, to building trust. And then another area that we've invested a lot in is um, these questions around research and science. Um, it's kind of an operational issue. So some of the ways we're exploring reducing water use is um, 
programs like fallowing and dusted irrigation and then leaving that water in the river to either help with environmental flows or it might be part of a conservation program to increase water security for a region or a basin. And so, but there's questions around what happens to the crop. Like, and the farmers always had these questions, you know, how, how long will my crop take to recover? Um, is there a long-term negative impact to my forage crop? You know, lots of different questions. And so we have often paid for the science and the, t and the monitoring to better get a, get a better handle on that question and so that we can provide uh, good answers to those questions when they have them. Um, another thing we were involved in is we've been exploring different ways of of uh, crop switching. So finding crops that might use less water, they might use water in a different time pattern. Uh, again, a great example from the Verde was we, you know, we realized that the, the biggest challenge to the river is that all the irrigation was happening in the heat of summer in Arizona. And so we looked for fields or in crops that could be, that the water diversion pattern and irrigation pattern could be shifted. And it turns out barley is a crop in Arizona that can be put in the ground um, in the winter. It's harvested in April and May, and the crop is done before the other crops are just starting to really get going. And so it reduced water that kind of draw on the river in the heat of summer. But what we found, so we found these farmers that were willing to try this and it grows great in this particular location, but what we, but then they didn't have a market. And so then we invested in a malt house to make sure that they had a market uh, and a buyer for their crop. And that um, barley is then used for breweries, distilleries, and bakeries in, in the valley, in the region, or in, you know, locally. So it really was a win-win. But those are the kinds of things that we're just constantly trying to explore. And we're, but we're really trying to do it in a way where we follow the farmer and rancher's lead. Um, we're, we're not trying to push anything. We're trying to find solutions that they're going to be comfortable with. And, you know, I, I, I think at the end of the day, if we can find those solutions that work for agriculture and work for the river, that, that to me is success. And we just, I just hope we can keep finding more and more of those win-win-wins. Well, I mean, that's an incredible list of things you are involved with, a diverse list, uh, really impactful, exciting stuff. Um, I, I, I love the that story there, the last one about the barley, you know, deals with the water issue, generates a crop, then it goes on and gets used in in beer and spirits and, and baked goods. That's, that's awesome. Um, Dan, I wanted to circle back to the farm bill. It's been mentioned a couple times. Uh, and I'm really curious to hear a little bit more about the farm bill as an area where, where agriculture, where farmers can be assisted with water issues. Sure. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, first of all, <laughs> the farm bill, when you look at the totality of the dollars that are spent on the farm bill, most of it goes to um, uh, the food stamp programs, SNAP program. And that's sort of by design um, way back in the day when that first sort of got added to the farm bill. It was really a means of getting urban, urban constituents' attention to ag issues. Um, but when you look at the, at the programs that are focused on agriculture, you know, a lot, there's a lot of attention paid to the commodity um, uh, title. Uh, the title that we spend most of our time on and, and working with groups like Taylor's is, is the conservation title of the Farm Bill. And um, there's lots of programs in there 
that um, uh, traditionally have provided opportunities for farmers to get dollars to do good things on the ground for um, water use efficiency, water quality, those sorts of things. And those are great, um, great, great programs. And, and we encourage our members to take advantage of them. But, you know, over the course of the last couple of decades, we've also seen opportunities um, to try to improve again, get bigger bang for the buck to do projects that have sort of a watershed wide basis where you're working with all the landowners and other stakeholder groups to come up with solutions that um, uh, sort of look collectively at a, at a larger watershed scale or regional scale. And um, that's some success that we've seen here since we started working with some of the conservation groups that ultimately formed the Western Ag Conservation Coalition is uh, our, our programs that started out looking at EQIP, the on-farm program, leading to the development of, of the Agricultural Watershed Enhancement Program, which morphed into the Regional Conservation Partnership Program, which is in place right now. I mean, that those programs obviously were, were developed by Congress, but I'm not sure we'd be where we are right now if it wasn't for the coalition that, that developed to advocate for, for those programs because they saw the benefit of it. So um, Farm, Farm Bill has many, many things in it, um, but from our standpoint, the conservation title um, has the strongest link to our organization. Our mission statement is all about trying to find ways to protect um, and enhance water supplies for irrigated agriculture. So that's the one that's important to us. Yeah. And what's the status of the Farm Bill right now? I should know this, but when, when was it last uh, reauthorized and what's, what's the next time that that happens? Two years ago, I think, it, it yeah. is when Congress passed it. So right now, there's already initial negotiations underway, kind of talking about, in general terms, what the next Farm Bill is going to look like. I think it's 2023, Taylor, right? I think that's when the next Sounds Farm right. Bill is. Okay. Yeah. And I, it's going to be a big one, I think, personally, just with um, you know building upon all the things that are happening right now, dealing with COVID response, dealing with um, carbon change and, and the... the the economic recovery we're trying to achieve. Um, and, and there's been just such a huge focus right now on uh, climate change and maybe carbon markets. Uh, I see this next farm bill, also wildfires and, and forest health. Um, I see um, this next farm bill as a, as a vehicle to address some of that. And I think, you know, while the, the, uh, Colorado Senator, Senior Senator um, Michael Bennett is going to be a good driver behind that. And both of our organizations have a great relationship with him. So interesting to see what happens. But um, I think this next farm bill is going to be expansive and um, well-timed for tackling some of the problems that we're seeing right now. So I'm really curious where things go from here. What's next? Uh, pull out your crystal ball, if you will, and, and kind of give your prognosis on what might be coming up. Yeah, I, I think that the challenge we're facing right now is that this area, this region, Western United States, is experiencing climate change faster than other parts of the lower 48. <clears throat> and our, the impacts we're facing are, it's going to be hotter, it's going to be drier, it's going to, there's going to be more extreme weather, there's going to be wildfires. I mean, we are, we are facing some really, really significant challenges when it comes to our water future and our, the security of everyone living in this region, whether you 
are, you know, just love living here or you're a farmer or you're living in a city, it's going to impact everyone. And I, I think the biggest challenge that we face is, A, first convincing everyone that we do need to be responsive. We do need to have a plan in place. We need to have more flexibility in our in our water loss system. <clears throat> we need to be able to share the, the resource as things get tighter. And frankly, no one wants to make do with less water. I mean, that that just is going to be hard. Um, there's no way around that. And I see, I think I first our first step is really um, creating that sense of urgency. Most of us that work in the water field every day feel that urgency every morning when we wake up. But, you know, most people that live in cities maybe don't have the connection with their rivers or what's happening out in the, the landscape don't have that everyday sense. And so it's up to all of us as a community, water community, and that includes cities and industry, to really convey that message and to kind of foster that continuing sense of collaboration and need to have a plan in place. And I think it's critical that we do have a plan in place because there are plenty of examples around the world where um, drought has devastated a region. And I think we've been given a gift of time and lots of warning. And so my hope is that we can, you know, really work together in the, the ways that we've been talking about today, but also partnering with cities and industry and government to put a plan in place ahead of time. Maybe we never need it. Let's, you know, we can all hope for that. Um, but we need a plan in place because my concern relative to the topic today is that agriculture and nature will likely be the biggest losers if we don't have a plan in place. If we don't have solutions teed up, ready to go, my sense is that, you know, politically speaking, the cities will get their water. If we just come to that crisis point, um, water, um, you know, state engineers around the West are going to make sure cities have water to for people to turn on their tap. So, I think it's in our interest as the agricultural and environmental community to really be part of the solution so that we can avoid that future. Um, and I think if we get it right, we, uh, and there are lots of opportunities and solutions to continue to explore. Uh, we're on water time right now. You know, everything takes longer than you think it should. So we really can't <laughs> take our foot off the pedal right now. But if we get this right, I think we can be a model for agriculture and environmental and communities to work together from around the world. I mean, this is this issue of drought and water scarcity is not unique to the Western United States. So I really think we can be a leader and a model for the rest of the world as, as we are solving our own challenges here in the region. Well, we need we need water to come out of the tap, but we need food to go on our plate too, right? <laughs> it's a pretty yeah. Impor yes. important question, yeah. right? So <laughs> To that point, so I mean, we we share um, Taylor's concerns about you know just the 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 major mega drought, climate change induced, whatever you want to attribute it to. It's a serious problem right now. We're seeing changed hydrology throughout the West. Um, I, I think a, a concern that we have uh, that's just as great is what you just brought up, and that is by the year 2050, our 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 planet is facing a gap in our ability to meet the growing uh, hunger needs of, of the planet. And American farmers and ranchers are the best on the planet. We have the most strict uh, food safety requirements. Um, it's a, it, we have the most secure food source in the world. 
But um, the reality is the average age of farmers is, is getting older. We're having a hard time bringing young people into the industry um, for a variety of reasons. Um, in some areas, ag is seen as sort of the villain and we're constantly you know, weathering media attacks by folks in urban areas who think that you know farmers are just sucking up all this water when in fact they're the ones eating the food that requires all the water. Um, <laughs> So, um, so what we, the one good thing that might come out of this drought that we're seeing this year is a increased uh, public and political awareness and how how critical this is. I mean, this is becoming the norm. Uh, what we're what we're facing this year, and our approach has always been uh, it's an all of the above sort of suite of actions that needs to be undertaken when you develop the the plan that that um, Taylor alludes to, and that's a that's a combination of demand management actions, you know, improve water use efficiency, um, uh, desal, water recycling in urban areas, natural, and then it's, then it's combined with supply enhancement actions. We need, in certain areas, new storage. We need improved conveyance facilities. Um, we also need some more flexible uh, regulations in how water is managed in the West. It's very, very inflexible right now. And as we're seeing right here in the Klamath Basin this year, uh, we're, I'm going to have friends that are going to go out of business, uh, in part due to the drought, but in part due to the regulations that have totally reallocated how our water supply is being used uh, in the last 20 years. So it's that whole suite of actions. And again, when you have sort of an all above approach, it provides opportunities to have unique bedfellows, <laughs> you could say, right? Uh, we, we, agree, we work with Nature Conservancy and others on supporting, you know, sound natural infrastructure options. We work with urban entities to support water recycling and desal and reuse programs because the, those programs are undertaken in urban areas. It takes a target off of looking at agriculture as sort of the simple, easy tar uh, reservoir to reallocate water. <laughs> so that's sort of what, uh, what our approach is. It's all of the above. And, um, and the more options that you, you are willing to consider, the more allies you have on, on certain aspects of that overall portfolio. Well, Taylor and Dan, uh, this conversation was really fantastic. Uh, a wealth of great insight and perspective and information. Uh, I'm excited to see just this collaboration between conservation and ag and hope that it continues to grow and deepen. Uh, but thanks to both of you for your time. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Travis. Great to see you, Taylor. Great to see you, Dan. <laughs> Waterloop. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's episode. A special thanks to Waterloop supporters, Springpoint Partners, and the Walton Family Foundation. The Waterloop Podcast is sponsored by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart, stylish way to save energy, water, and money while enjoying a powerful shower. Use promo code LOOP20 for 20% off at HighSierraShowerheads.com. If you like Waterloop, please subscribe to the YouTube channel or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on social media and visit Waterloop.org to sign up for updates. Waterloop, Waterloop.